You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So if you're a subscriber to LaborUnionNews.com's News Digest, you're probably already aware of the fact that we post hundreds of articles per week. And that's been over 13,000 of them since we launched LaborUnionNews.com last year. Now, despite the fact that there are news stories out on an almost daily basis that could use some explaining or some attention drawn to certain aspects of them, I've been really, really reluctant to start posting daily episodes of Labor Relations Radio to bring you what I think are the important news stories because, frankly, I don't want to get overextended and build the audience expectations higher than I can deliver on. And I hope you understand that. However, what I think we're going to do from time to time and perhaps weekly is do episodes that we're going to call, at least as a working title, Between the Lines, to focus on some of the more important labor union news stories and some of the topics that are either purposely or unintentionally escaping some of the reporters covering labor relations. And this is the first episode to that end. Now, I mentioned a second ago, reporters that either purposely or unintentionally miss some of the main things in articles, or they just don't write them at all. And let me share why. Some of you may or may not be aware of the bias that's in the sphere of labor union news reporting. And whether you agree with it or not, there's a tendency for journalists covering labor union news to write from a certain point of view or vantage point, and that's mostly from a pro-union point of view. There's a reason for this, and it's pretty basic, and while I'm not going to name specific names, I'm just going to point out that most of the reporters today are union members, and they are advocates for unions in their reporting. Not necessarily overtly, but you can see it in their writing if you follow them long enough. For example, one of the main reporters at Bloomberg is a former union organizer, and when he publishes news stories, they have an undercurrent of bias in almost every piece. Company bad, union good. And one of the other reporters at the Washington Post, one of the other labor reporters over at the Washington Post, is a union acolyte who I've followed for a while now, and if you follow her on Twitter, you'll find that she is overtly biased. And although she's toned it down a bit after moving from Vice over to the Washington Post, it's still in her reporting, just not as overt. And the list goes on from Vice to BuzzFeed to Daily Coast to In These Times. There is a plethora of pro-union writers out there. So in addition to that, most of the, the newsrooms themselves that are covering union news are unionized. The Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, for example, is out on strike right now. The writer's there. As a result of that, there are sometimes stories or portions of stories that are overlooked or buried by the journalists, the quote journalists. So that's why we're going to start calling these episodes between the lines for now. And of course, like all our other episodes of Labor Relations Radio, we'll share the links to the articles we discuss under the audio portion of this each episode. So let's get started. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. 
Some of you may recall that towards the end of 2022, we posted an article uh, related to 2023 potentially being the year of the strike. And that was based on a Bloomberg article where Bloomberg noted that there are at least 150 union contracts sent to expi- set to expire in 2023 involving at least 1.6 million workers, not to mention all of the union organizing wins that are now going to the bargaining table. So we may see a big upsurge. And of course, UPS is garnering the most press coverage right now because the Teamsters new president, Sean O'Brien, has built his campaign and now his presidency on being a tough negotiator, especially after his predecessor shoved the current UPS contract down the Teamster members' throats after they rejected it. Then there are the Detroit 3 contracts expiring, which could also lead to a strike. However, last week there were a couple of stories that we posted that had a somewhat common theme. And the first story was the end of the UAW strike at Case New Holland. Now, some of you may recall that the United Auto Workers had been on strike against Case New Holland since May of last year. Well, After nearly nine months of being on strike, the UAW settled the strike. However, one of the the things that most of the mainstream media, or rather the pro-union journalists, seem to overlook is the fact that the strike may have reached its conclusion due to the fact that CNH, Case New Holland, told the strikers that if they rejected their latest, last, best, and final offer, the company was going to begin hiring permanent replacement workers. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with strikes in the United States, if workers go out on strike, they cannot be fired. They can, however, be replaced. And if the strike is what is referred to as an economic strike, meaning that it's over wages, hours of work, or other working conditions, the strikers are considered economic strikers. And not only can they be replaced, they can be replaced permanently. And this has been part of the law since 1938, when the United States Supreme Court, in a case called McKay Radio versus NLRB, ruled on the legality of permanent replacements. Again, workers are not fired, they're just permanently replaced. Which means that if the union or the strikers give an unconditional offer to return to work, and they've been permanently replaced, they're not entitled to their jobs until an opening occurs. So if you've ever heard the term union busting, that is what the traditional term union busting refers to. If workers get permanently replaced and there's no contract after 12 months, the replacement workers can vote to decertify the union or kick the union out, and the union has been busted. However, back to the CNH strike, if you look at some of the media coverage, although it was buried as a sentence most in most of the press coverage about halfway down, CNH apparently told the UAW strikers that after nearly nine months of striking, if they didn't take the latest offer, they'd be permanently replaced. Now, the second story, which is somewhat related to the CNH story in that it also involves the UAW, is the story of Caterpillar. Now, Caterpillar and the UAW, if you've been around labor relations long enough, you may recall that They have a long history together, and sometimes it gets acrimonious. And Caterpillar and the UAW are currently in negotiations for a renewal contract involving a number of uh, facilities or plants involving, including those in Peoria, Illinois. 
as well as Decatur, Illinois. So Caterpillar has put up a website to give information, presumably to its employees, about the negotiations. And on the website, there are sections regarding the status of negotiations, the company's position, employees' current benefits, as well as the facts about strikes. Now, I found this interesting because as a former union member who's been out on strike some 35 years ago, before Al Gore invented the internet, some of those facts that are presented on Caterpillar's website, I would have liked to have seen prior to striking. Included in the facts about strike section is the fact that if Caterpillar's employees go out on strike, strikers in Illinois are not entitled to unemployment compensation. The company is also not required to continue paying for employees' health insurance. Employees have the right under COBRA to pick up the total costs. And also that the employees can be permanently replaced in an economic strike. Now, we posted an article covering Caterpillar's website and what was going on uh, with regard to, you know, their negotiations, etc. And I found it interesting that some of the commenters on LinkedIn found Caterpillar's position of educating its employees about the facts around strikes as bad. And I'm not sure why they think employees having that information is bad. However, I suspect that many of the employees employed by Caterpillar today were not around during the 17-month strike that the UAW waged against Caterpillar back in the 90s. For those of us that are long in the tooth, so to speak, we remember that. And Caterpillar's history with the UAW has not always been pretty. But although some would say that it's the union's responsibility to educate their members, the UAW in recent years has had enough struggles with corruption and the lack of leadership. In fact, they're in the middle of a presidential election right now that perhaps companies like Caterpillar are doing their employees a service rather than a disservice. Now, I mention these articles because I think it's going to be a growing trend in labor relations where companies are going to be starting to take a harder line in negotiations forewarning employees of the consequences in part in response to all of the union organizing that's been going on across the country. Now, in a story that's tangentially related to the UAW stories with Caterpillar and CNH comes a story this week involving the UAW strike that happened last year at the University of California. Headlines, uh, headline from sfgate.com, UC intends to dock pay of workers who went on strike. Quote, the raises University of California graduates, graduate student workers won after last year's historic work stoppage come with a big caveat. Those same UC workers will have to repay all the money they earned while they were on strike. The UC, quote, may not legally pay our employees or gift them funds if they did not provide a service to the institution, wrote Ryan King, a spokesperson for the University of California Office of the President. He cited state and federal rules that forbid the university from paying employees who did not work, end quote. Now, although the UAW is not challenging the fact that the university is entitled to its monies, it is challenging the way that the university is going about it. To that end, the UAW and the other unions that participated in the UC strike have filed charges with the California Public Employee Relations Board. Uh, 
Now, we don't know how that's going to be resolved, but to my point earlier, I'm curious to know how many of those graduate students that went out on strike last year realized that the monies that they were being paid while being out on strike by the university would eventually have to be paid back. Forewarned is forearmed, as they say. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Another article that I highly recommend reading in full is from the Labor Relations Institute's Phil Wilson, wherein he analyzes the latest Bureau of Labor Statistics union membership summary that was published a couple weeks ago. You may recall seeing a lot of press coverage over the latest BLS figures and how the unions have been citing them as really a positive story. Well, Phil's post, which is entitled 2022, a good year or bad year for unions, takes a scalpel to the numbers. And I'm only going to give you a quick highlight as you should really read the whole thing. And again, this will be linked under the audio portion of this episode. Phil covers some of the union's glass half full version of the BLS numbers and writes, quote, but there are a few additional points to keep in mind. First, union density reached its lowest point in 2022 at 10.1% overall and only 6% in the private sector. While union represented positions increased, the vast majority of jobs created last year were non-union. You may wonder how that's possible given the rosy picture painted by the AFL-CIO. In 2021, the total number of union-represented workers dropped by over 240,000. That means unions netted only about 30,000 workers during a year that the economy created over 5 million new jobs. Also note that out of the 273,000 represented workers, only about two Only about 200,000 of them are union members. Nearly one-third of these newly represented workers are choosing not to become union members. Instead, they are required to be represented by a union. It is also worth noting that most of these newly represented workers were not newly organized by unions. Last year's successful union elections only had about 50,000 eligible voters. That's a big increase over the 25,000 workers organized in 2021, but it highlights the fact that even in what most consider a banner year for organizing, newly organized workers barely make a blip in the overall density statistics. End quote. Now, again, there's much, much more that Phil covers in there, and his post is definitely worth the read. Check it out under the audio portion of this episode. Another uh, story that's worth following up on is the story of how the United Steelworkers were recently decertified after trying to impose a contract on employees behind their backs. Now, for anyone who's been involved with labor relations for any length of time, you already know how difficult it is to decertify a union. It is much easier to vote a union in than it is to decertify one. In large measure, that's because the way the National Labor Relations Board has put up barriers for employees to decertify a union. And the barriers are twofold. First, there's the the election bar. The election bar is a bar to an election within the first 12 months that a union is certified. So if workers vote a union in, for example, on January 1st, they're barred from having an election to decertify that same union or replace it with another union for at least one year. 
The second barrier is what is known as a contract bar. This is where the NLRB prohibits workers from decertifying a union or replacing a union for as long as a contract is in effect or up to three years, whichever is shorter. So if you have a five-year contract, workers cannot decertify or replace a union for at least the three years of the five-year contract. If it's a two-year contract, then the workers are barred for the two years, but they can decertify towards the end of the second year. Now, there is a 30-day window that opens up towards the end of the final year of a contract where employees can petition to hold an election to either decertify or replace an existing union. However, if workers miss that 30-day window and there's still two months or three months left on the contract, and it's depending on whether it's healthcare or not healthcare, um, the union can put them into another contract for up to three years or an up to a three-year contract. So in the case involving the United Steel workers that I just referenced a few minutes ago, the union was voted into a Pennsylvania company called Latrobe Specialty Metals Company in 2020. And the company started negotiating with the union in 2021. And in July of 2022, the company and the union reached a tentative agreement. Well, that means it wasn't signed yet. So on July 25th of 2022, the union conducted a ratification vote. And the, the members or the workers who voted during that ratification vote rejected the tentative agreement. So upon rejection, the union notified the company that the offer was rejected. And again, this happened on July 25th. On July 28th, an employee began circulating a decertification petition. The union scheduled another ratification meeting for August 1st. Now, the timing of this is somewhat important because there were three shifts at this facility and the union's ratification meetings or votes were held at three different times. So between the second and the third meetings on August 1st, the employee filed the decertification petition with the National Labor Relations Board and gave copies to the union and the employer. Now, as a side note, and it's somewhat relevant, the workers again rejected the contract at the second ratification vote. But upon filing the decertification petition, the union then argued that the workers couldn't decertify the union because it had already executed an, an, executed an agreement with the employer. So over the course of the next few months, the employee, with the help from the National Right to Work Legal Foundation, argued that the union did not have a contract bar. Then in November... The NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, and this is out of the Pittsburgh region, ruled that the union did not have a contract bar and ordered the decertification election to take place. In December, the employees voted to decertify the steel workers, and the election was certified in mid-January following the union withdrawing its objections. Okay, so that on its surface is a normal, quote, normal decertification story. However, to me, one of the more important aspects of this story bears some repeating, despite the fact that the NLRB didn't give this argument merit when it was raised. And in the story on laborunionnews.com that we published, we've given you links to both the NLRB's decision as well as the press release from the National Right to Work Foundation. 
But one of the many things that employees do not know about the National Labor Relations Act and unions is that there is no provision under the law that requires employees the right to vote or requires a union to allow members to vote on contracts, whether it's to accept them or reject them. Let me say that again. There's no legal requirement under the National Labor Relations Act to force unions or require them to allow members to vote on contracts or to reject them. So it's normally common practice for unions to allow workers to vote to ratify or reject contracts, but it's not legally required. And there are plenty of cases where the National Labor Relations Board, as they did in this case, rejected union members' arguments that they should have been allowed to vote on a contract and were not. And what happened in this case was the uh, plaintiff, if you will, or the petitioner, the employee, through her attorneys, tried raising this to the NLRB and it was dismissed. In other words, the contract bar was not going to be based on whether the employee's ratified it or not. In this case, the steelworkers argued before the National Labor Relations Board that the contract should be in effect merely based on the signature of the union's agent, despite the fact that the employees had rejected it twice. In fact, the only reason the NLRB rejected the union's contract bar claim is because the union's business agent did not put the dates on the contract. So were it not for the union's forgetfulness or lack of attention to detail, had the union put the contract start dates and end dates onto the contract, despite what the employees wanted, the union would have had a contract and the board would have upheld the contract bar. Again, most workers do not know that unions are not legally required to get their approval before putting them into a contract. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So there's a couple of other quick stories that I'll just mention before we close this episode out. Last week, the PBGC, or Pension Benefit Guarantee Corp., doled out over a quarter billion dollars of taxpayer monies to rescue five more union pension funds. And if you're a subscriber to LaborUnionNews.com's News Digest, you probably saw the post on this. Now, whether you support pension bailouts or not, the reason we're covering these at LaborUnionNews.com is because they're not getting in any press coverage to speak of. The pension bailouts are funded by taxpayer monies and were part of the $1.5 trillion American Rescue Plan that was signed last year. In sum, the union pension problem has been an issue for years. It's largely due to unionized employers going out of business or exiting the pension funds and no longer contributing to them due to the rise of non-union competition, whether it's in construction, manufacturing, or trucking, or other industries. Right now, the PBGC is only halfway done doling out the money. As of January 27th, which was last Friday, the PBG stated that it had approved over $45.8 billion in special financial assistance to plans that cover up to 553,000 workers, retirees, and beneficiaries. And again, the reason we're covering and posting every time the PBGC bails out a union pension fund is because no one in the journalism world, the labor journalists, so to speak, appear to be wanting to do so. So we're posting every time a pension fund gets bailed out with taxpayer money 
a post on it. Now, on to our last story. This is headline from HuffPost out today, TikTok bans Medieval Times Union account following trademark complaint. And this is from Dave Jameson, who's from, uh, who covers labor stuff at HuffPost, used to be Huffington Post. Quote, Aaron Zapchik woke up Saturday morning to some unwelcome notifications on social media. Zapchik, an actor who plays a queen at Medieval Times in Buena Park, California, also helps run Facebook and TikTok accounts for the new union representing workers at her castle. The notification from Facebook concerned a post by the union account that called on the famed dinner theater chain to pay a living wage. Further down, Jameson writes, it states, the news was even worse over on TikTok. Account banned a notification from the social media platform read, according to a screenshot. Your account is banned from violating TikTok's intellectual property. Now, the story goes on to explain how the union, calling itself Medieval Times Performers United, which is part of the American Guild of Variety Artists, an AFL-CIO affiliate, is being sued by Medieval Times for trademark infringement. Now, I don't believe the case has been heard or settled yet. However, HuffPost's Dave Jameson makes an interesting point that could have much broader ramifications for unions. Elsewhere, Jameson writes, other unions have similarly referenced their employer name or employer in their name. Starbucks Workers United, Amazon Labor Union, Trader Joe's United, to name a few. But Medieval Times appears to be the only company that has sued over it. That's end quote. Now, that's a really interesting point, and I'm curious whether other companies like Amazon, Apple, Chipotle, Trader Joe's, Starbucks, and others whose names are being used, and in some cases their logos as well, are watching this case at all. In any case, we'll keep an eye on this one as it unfolds, because it, it's got some weird and somewhat broad ramifications in that so many unions have rebranded themselves and have started using the employer names in their branding. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio and our first episode of Between the Lines. We may change it if we come up with something better, but in any case, that's that's a quick synopsis of some of the important stories that we've noticed over the last week or so. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Leave us a comment under the audio portion of this episode of Labor Relations Radio, or give us a call at 1-888-668-6466. Thanks for listening, and until next time, have a great day. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.